Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We'll be releasing a series of special episodes to help you understand the background to this crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Today I'm on the road, sitting in my car in a noisy car park in Swindon. But that hasn't stopped me from being able to talk to Alexander Clarkson, who's an academic at King's College London and an expert on... Ukraine, on the EU's relations with its borders, and on bigger geopolitical strategic issues. Alexander, welcome to Doomsday Watch. Hi, thanks for inviting me on. If we could just start, if I'm right, you've got a sort of personal link to Ukraine. Yeah, my mom's family are are Ukrainian diaspora, and, and it's always important to emphasize that um, I was born abroad. I'm mean, born in the diaspora. So the diaspora is always a bit different from the country of origin. We have family there. Um, luckily, they live in a city in the far west of the country, Chernivtsi and Ternopil, which hopefully will get through this relatively unscathed. Um, family involved in all of this have also been luckily been stationed in places that are important, but not in the, in the worst of it. So um, when I found that out on, on, on Saturday and Sunday through my aunts, uh, it's, it, it was actually a lot of relief. Yeah, you know, I, I can imagine. Well, that's, that's good to hear. Um, you're somebody who has very much engaged on these issues as a public intellectual, uh, discussing questions around the EU and how it responds to geopolitical challenges. And I think one could say that you were also uh, somebody who rightly called the limitations of uh, Russia's military versus the transformation of the Ukrainian military since 2014. So perhaps you could, before we get into the detail, perhaps you could characterize what your thinking was in the run-up to Russia's invasion and to the extent to which uh, some, of, some of your ideas have, have turned out to have been uh, correct. I, th- I think, actually, I mean, it's, it's been a mixed bag. I think some of my core ideas have turned out to be wrong. I think I need to be sort of, sort of very cautious about that because yeah. everybody coming out of this is going to have to do, look at it and work out what they got wrong and what they got right. I think what surprised me in the run-up to this, and not just me, so, so I wrote a piece for Foreign Policy and, and, and other co- colleagues, similar colleagues like Ben Connable at Georgetown or my esteemed colleague Lawrence Friedman here at uh, KCL and Sam Green. We looked at uh, things like the size of the force the Russians had built up. Yeah. And then we looked at the claims we had from very fantastic American colleagues in particular. I mean, I was very critical of them, but they were right and I was wrong, um, who said this was going to, the plan was to go for a full occupation. And people like me or Ben or Laurie, we just looked at this and we thought, you know, they don't have the numbers for this. This doesn't make any sense. How are you going to occupy a country of 41 million people with 150,000, 190,000 troops? That's just, it's it's sort of la-la land. And uh, there's things like, you know, a professional sort of jargon like troop to task ratio and other terms that you have, which are also, by the way, important for understanding how borders are controlled. So I thought, yes, they had the Russians had talked themselves into a position where they're going to have to attack something. 
But I thought it was going to be it was going to be destructive and horrific, but much more limited, like what they did in, to Georgia in two thousand eight. Yeah, that they would go for this kind of maximalist aim against the Ukrainian military, which I think, for a number of reasons that have actually quite angered me in the last few years, has been incredibly underestimated. Was 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 madness. I, it just didn't make any sense. But sometimes I think I said this on Twitter a few days ago. Sometimes when something doesn't make any sense, it's because it doesn't make any sense. The Russians were operating on a, on a kind of a logic and and and, a, and and an understanding of the situation that just didn't match up the realities with on the ground. And let's try to interrogate that a bit. Is this, you know, a lot of people are theorizing about the psychology of Vladimir Putin. I, you know, there's, there's limits to the utility of that. But as you say, when something doesn't make sense, do we think it's because of a dysfunctional leadership? Perhaps people are terrified of saying to Putin, you know, Mr. President, your, your plans are useless. Is it actually more about what we've seen evidence coming from the ground that the, the, the Russian forces are demoralized, they've got out of date kit? Or are there other responses that might be based in much bigger questions about how Russia sees itself and how it it can't it struggles to sort of integrate itself with the realities of the 21st century. I think that there is, of course, the mental state of Vladimir Putin here plays is a huge a part of the story. But I think it's the one that we understand least. I mean, we're not telepaths; we we can't no. look into his mind. But, but the problem is, is that is now undoubtedly an, an issue, and we need to kind of work it out. But I think it's a much more systemic problem. But it's also a systemic problem, I think, that isn't just a Russian one. It was one that I think, think shot through a lot of analysis in Europe and the United States about the strength of the Ukrainian state. So a trope of since 2014 or even since 1991 has always been that Ukraine has a strong society, but a weak state. Yeah. And I think that was a fundamental misunderstanding about, first of all, how the Ukrainian state operates. A misunderstanding about the extent to which Ukrainian society itself values the state. And the extent to which you can have a lot of deep dysfunctions, yet still have a functional state if all parts of society see their existential interests threatened, right? And I think this is the classic thing is, is people you know, have been looking at the Ukrainian army. I, mean, I, I looked at these estimates in the summer and, and the autumn about how fall quickly the Ukrainian army would collapse and all of that stuff. Yeah. And it, some of it was just based on assumptions that were completely at variance with what the Ukrainian army was becoming. It was not strong enough to defeat the Russians in armored maneuver warfare, but the Ukrainian military leadership aren't dipsticks, right? I mean, they, they understood that perfectly well. Right. They've been planning around that for years and years. And if you think this is bad enough in US and EU analysis that still operate around this ridiculous paradigm that Ukraine is some kind of failed state, which is nonsensical, then that's obviously deeply embedded as well in the Russian general staff. And my mistake, among other things, was to think that the, of all the people, the Russian general staff that has some professionals in it would understand that this would be a tough task and there were actually a lot of indications among well-connected russian military analysts that there has been there's been like pushback internally against some of this stuff i think if you read it back at what was being written in january and december yeah. from well-connected bloggers i think it was really clear that there must have been a debate going on from people saying hold on a minute this is crazy but you know clearly it's not just a russian attitude problem it's a general i think a wider sort of quasi-colonial view of ukrainian society which also means that when the Russians read Western analysis, they think, well, you see, we're right. The UK's, these, these Ukrainians won't be able to handle it. And that was a huge, huge, huge blunder. So, so in a strange way, we've all been reinforcing this, this idea that, that, you know, that Ukraine was incapable, whilst at the same time, as you'll know better than I do, literally hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians now have combat experience from the war that's raged since 2014 in, in the east of the country. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of this also had to do with, particularly in Western, but also from what I've seen from Russian analysis, had to do with, with a, I think, a real misunderstanding of the psychology of, 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 of combat and soldiering. You'd read a lot of sort of American analysis or, or even British analysis saying, well, the, the Ukrainians, they're very good at positional warfare. Um, but they can't do maneuver warfare, so tanks wheeling around because they've fought in trenches. Yeah. But I mean, in a sense, that doesn't matter. What matters is if everything goes to hell around you, do can you stay calm? Yeah. Execute a plan and follow orders and respond to the situation as it unfolds around you. When people develop that basic psychological skill, when they cross that threshold, whether it's in a trench or it's in a tank, then they're able to operate in these insane environments whatever the kind of tactical uh, problems that they're faced with. You have 400,000 people, at least in Ukrainian society, who psychologically and emotionally have crossed that threshold. And whatever hits them have the skills, in most cases, to stay calm and do whatever needs to do to survive. And I think that was fundamental. And I think a lot of the Russians being sent over aren't these super professional kontraktniki, contract soldiers that we saw in Syria or Libya, mm. or these mercenaries. They're, they're just, I mean, that they only have around 30,000 of them. Many of them are concentrated in the South. That's why they may be making more progress there. But they're mostly conscripts who've never done this in their life. They haven't crossed that threshold yet. And yeah. they're facing people in Ukrainian society who are eight, nine, six, seven, eight, nine years older who have. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a crucial difference. And the one thing, you know, the Western countries have learned is that invading and occupying a country is incredibly difficult. And it's particularly difficult in the age when uh, even if the invader is indifferent to uh, civilian suffering, uh, if you're in the age when you can transmit uh, videos in real time of war crimes, it is next to impossible to do that. And I think Again, the Russians don't appear to have thought that through ahead of time. This comes back. I think my, my colleague Lawrence Friedman was pointing to this in the summer or in the October, November that there was no, there was, there were no signs of any planning for a post-occupation administration. Yeah, like whatever you say about the Americans in two thousand two three, and however nonsensical many of those American plans were, they had a plan. It was badly run, but there was some sort of idea of this is what we want to do. Right. And I think, you know, the Russians built up a huge force complement. And I think that's where I have to you know, take tip my hat off to, 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 to these colleagues in the States who just saw it immediately and said, this is this is an invasion force. Yeah. And they were right. But it, there's nothing else around it. Where where is this going? I mean, are you literally did they literally think they could walk into Kiev and put a puppet administration up and the entire civil civil service and administration of the country would just flip sides and that would be fine? Anyone yeah. with a basic understanding of Ukrainian society. But beyond that, I think, and that was what was lacking more, particularly also in Western analysis, and even understanding of the resilience of the Ukrainian state for all its corruption and dysfunction, which is all of those things are there, would have understood that that's just, if I'm allowed to swear, batshit crazy. So we're, we've got to the first few days of March, and it's it's easy to agree that, as this discussion reflects, that the Russians really didn't think this through properly. So let's try and think forward, because the Russians are still saying that they need to denazify Ukraine and demilitarize Ukraine, which, which everyone can agree is, 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 a, is a nonsense. It, you know, there, there's no negotiation on that basis. Um, is this just going to turn into a long-running insurgency, again, painfully familiar to some of us in the West, or do you think that something uh, perhaps more dramatic, but also in, in a shorter term, May, may bring this conflict to a close? I think, well, okay, so I think when everybody talks about insurgency, I think that for me shows up, 
a limitation in the analytical paradigm that you have in the EU, UK, and US. Inevitably, everybody is going to analyze, analyze something through the filter of their own previous military and diplomatic experience. Sure. And the great majority of people um, doing policy on this, even in UCOM, say Amer American military is European command, or, yeah. or the, their main combat and military experience was in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah. Which means that the first thing they see when they see this is insurgency. The problem is, is that this is the first case of state-on-state -state warfare to relatively – I know high-functioning is a political science term. So high-functioning in terms of Russia and Ukraine. You know, let's, let's just put that aside in terms of this, both states. You know, they have dysfunctions. But in terms of high-functioning near-peer or half-peer versus great power, this is, we haven't seen this since 1945. Maybe no. the one case where we've seen it was Vietnam versus China in 1979, right, where you have full-on states – Going more with each other. The only other, I think, example I can reach back to is Serbia versus Croatia in 92. Yeah. A brutal, long, grinding war. Neither side could take each other's capital. Um, neither side was willing to let go. The Croatians were too weak to push the, the, the Serbians out, or the Serbian proxy, whatever you want to call them, out. The Serbians weren't strong enough to take Zagreb, and in the end gave up on it, and weren't really, really interested in the first place. I think that's a you know, long debate. And it just sort of went on and on and on, and it became part of the routine of the early 1990s. And I think that we need to start rethinking a little bit about what the Ukrainian state is, what its resilience is, what it's capable of doing. Because, yeah, even if Kiev falls, which I don't know if it's going to do that. You still have Lviv yeah. as the C2 uh, yeah. alternative, which has been set up for years. Everybody yeah. knew this, yeah. that Lviv in the West has been the capital number two in, in, in a contingency. Right. And so, you know, in all of this, first of all, if this opens a parent doors box, hopefully it closes it. But if it opens it, we need to get used to the idea of state on state warfare. And then that's different from the kind of paradigms we've operating in in the last couple of years. Yeah. Because state on state warfare involves a whole different set of of, of factors and dynamics in a, in, in a conflict. And particularly if it becomes a people's war, at least on one side. I think the second question this opens up is I've read over the last years tons of analysis about how, I don't know, the United States could overwhelm Iran, or the Chinese could walk in and smash up Taiwan, or all that all that sort of thing. I think we need to start asking serious questions about how far even the biggest superpowers have the power to easily knock over even a half-peer state. Yeah. Whether, whether we have actually seriously overestimated the ability of great powers to impose their will on middle-sized states. Iran, Taiwan... Vietnam, you know, all of those places that are yeah. heavily exposed, yeah. right? Because if that's the case, then we have to rethink a little bit about how the global order works and actually begin to consider the fact that medium-sized states have a lot more agency. And when they start figuring this out, we'll throw their weight around a little bit more and demand more support and attention or demand more influence over how issues are decided. Yeah, I, th I think that's absolutely right. And of course, then what flows from that is this question of escalation, uh, you know, quite quickly, of course, it's, you know, anyone who's been listening to, to Russian military leaders talk uh, will know that they, they quite like to threaten nukes now and then, you know, that, that's, that's not new. Um, but it is, it's, not, it's not irrelevant either. Uh, a, a nuclear armed state, um, it, it, it certainly changes, changes the calculations. You're absolutely right. We've returned to an era of interstate war and, and there's two large European powers uh, fighting with massed armies, uh, but have we also returned to an era of, of nuclear escalation? 
I don't know. I think this is this is the problem. This is the, this is the what is going on in Putin's head, which I hate yes. as a paradigm. Yeah. But you know, in this case, we'd have to work it out. I think, I think anyone else in the Russian system wouldn't even touch it, because yeah. it would it would just it would uh, the moment they 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 even have a tactical nuke or something like that. The moment they do that, that it's over for them. They're done. Right. Yeah. You know, because the, the, their whole their whole system will just. I mean, it's going to keel over anyway. But, I mean, I think the other potential escalation, which is I think much more realistic, is is that they try to mass mobilize the population to feed because they have a serious problem now that that if if you know if this goes on, they're going to have a substantial part of the combat strength of the Russian army either either in bad shape or tied down for years. So I think a, a, a more likely scenario is in the next couple of days they try to mass mobilize people or draft more people. The problem with that for the Russians is the moment they do that, they truly crater their economy, right? Because yeah. then they're taking people straight into, and if the military isn't able to cope with operations of 200,000 people, how is yeah. this mil Russian military structure going to cope when they start trying to chase draft dodgers, drag people into you know, the local draft offices, yeah. try to arm and equip them, um, local communities who don't really care about them. I mean, people in Russian Far East don't really care about any of this. No. Like somebody in, in Karabovsk or Vladivostok doesn't, doesn't give a damn about any of this. Yeah. So suddenly you're going to these people and saying, oh, now you have to join the army and whatever. You know, as long as it's on TV, you can sort of, you know, say, oh, wow, these poor people in Donbass. Once they start trying to conscript people and mobilize people, that's going to be a huge internal mess in Russia. Yeah. as well. But I think actually people are always off focused on the nukes because that, that's what we know about. I mean, the other escalation risks is they, they get desperate and start trying to, I don't know, cons you know, press gang people into going there. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, that does risks for, obvious risks for Ukraine because they'll still have to sit there and keep facing people coming in and in and in. Yeah. It's huge risks for Russia's internal stability as well. I, I want to move the discussion onto another area of your interest, which is the EU, the, the EU's uh, security and military structures, and of course the way that the EU acts as a geopolitical actor. Now, you're somebody who has, for, for a long time, identified the the possibly slow and unsteady steps of the EU. But I think it would be easy to agree that in in the last uh, ten days. Uh, these things have moved forward very quickly, whether we're talking about the EU itself uh, or, or some of its key member states, notably Germany. So I suppose, how would you sort of characterize where the EU is now as a, as a geopolitical actor? And then we could talk about how Ukraine is affecting that. I think that the, the, the issue is it seems very quick, but we, if you've actually looked closely at it, there's been a buildup towards this, at least for the last eight years after the shock of 2014. Yeah. At least a lot has been discussed. They're the, I mean, the EU is one of those institutions where you have these sort of skeletal structures that are set up and sort of barely agreed, maybe you have like 30 or 40 staff. And suddenly you have a crisis. And suddenly the EU looks around and says, what can we reach back to? And suddenly these these things become, these institutions become empires. You know, become yeah. like we've seen this with Frontex. We're seeing this with the European Public Prosecutor's Office, which I think people in the UK need to pay a lot more attention to. Yeah. Um, and any number of other institutions, like the ECB. And I think that if you think back to the to Draghi's whatever it takes moment in, in 2012 with the Eurozone crisis, like everyone was shocked with how suddenly the ECB moved and the entire system moved. Um, and, and also in some, some, like, as I say, I use the super tanker thing. When the super tanker gets going, it also plows things out of its way that might not and shouldn't be knocked over. Yeah. Right. But, um, but that had been building for three or four years in that crisis. And then over the previous decade, the institutional frameworks had been set. For what we could call European strategic autonomy, I'm never, I'm not going to claim the EU will ever have something like an army in, any, in, in the near future or be as a cohesive actor as China or the US. 
But what it is drifting to increasingly is understanding that it needs to have a basic level of coordination and a basic level of capacity to defend its interests in its own region. And I think what's also been a positive is because this has involved a crisis where there's uh, convergent interests with the United States, it means that unlike a few years ago, the whole idea of European strategic autonomy and greater geopolitical power is being framed in, term, in partnership with the U.S., I think the French have understood this finally and the, how you get everyone on board because one of the problems in terms of the way the EU is debated is the extent to which the geoeconomic is always separated from the geopolitical. So yeah. in the UK, we always had this debate, well, there's the single market and there's regulatory harmonization and there's this legal framework, but that's not the same as policing or security power, which frankly is bullshit. How do you defend a market? Like yeah. if you have constant chaos around your borders and warfare and destabilization, your market is fucked, right? Yeah. So obviously, over time, I mean, this is this is how this is state building one hundred and one. Yeah, I mean, beyond the human rights and moral dynamic and moral dimension of the EU, you in the end, you need a basic capacity to control and stabilize the political state space around you, in order to ensure that the in, potential instability around that space does not undermine the geoeconomic foundations of your internal market. Yeah. So the development of the internal market was always going to be require, initially, I call the EU a gendarmerie power at the moment, increasing integration of policing and gendarmerie capabilities, which, by the way, the British don't even have. It's a huge hole in Britain's military capability set. You know, over time, that will also require the ability to deploy shared military capabilities to stabilize spaces or to deter attacks on that space, because the geopolitical is not separate from the geoeconomic. Yeah. A stable single market is not possible without a stable neighborhood the emergence of the single market was inevitably going to require a degree of military convergence and coordination and greater capabilities and like this is what i don't get about the british debate the french understand this the italians yeah. understand this the spanish understand this the germans have difficulty with it they understand it right but in the uk it was like debate making this point was against like running against a brick wall for the last decade yeah well i think you put your finger on something very important which is of course in Britain, there is so much baggage about the EU. And then there is and was so, so many kind of actors willing to make bad faith arguments. So rather than engage with what you've just talked about, which seems like a very functional and factually based account of how markets need to protect themselves, you end up having this this sort of endless argument about, well, it's a German-led empire, it's the oh, third, no. you know, all that crap. So, but it, also, know, but it also no. doesn't mean that the UK has to join it, right? I mean, no, the UK no. could be a full member of the single market, doesn't have to be a full member of the EU, but it's it, the, the stability of this market, whatever we have a Brexit debate here, and I don't want to make this a Brexit debate, no. the stability of this market is also in the UK's interest. Yeah. So, so I guess to sort of bring this, I mean, genuinely fascinating discussion back to the Ukraine question. Uh, but we haven't talked about NATO yet. And of course, Britain, in my opinion, you know, having been on the inside of these debates, uh, usually made the argument that we didn't want to confuse NATO's role with the EU's role. And that was why Britain was often opposed to the EU developing its uh, military capabilities. But undeniably, uh, NATO plays a central role in in aspects of, of this defense uh, question. So what is the appropriate overlap, the, the appropriate sort of coordination, and, and what are the different roles here? But also with the question of NATO expansion, not necessarily to Ukraine, but, you know, maybe Finland and Sweden, just, just as possible debates that are now unfolding. Where do you see NATO developing in this space? 
I think first of all, the UK debate about the EU NATO paradigm just was just just for me was reflected a fundamental lack of strategic imagination. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, NATO. I mean, there doesn't have to be a clash between the EU developing security structures to deal with a lot of issues that aren't actually NATO issues. Right. NATO yeah. isn't very good at counterinsurgency. It's not very good at stabilization operations. It's not really what it's designed to do. But it does provide an infrastructure that could, through a lot of coordination, the EU could fall back on. And I always thought that instead of resisting it, the best way for the UK to ensure that its interests were either inside or outside the EU were protected was to redirect the EU strategic economy debate to be what's saying, okay, but why duplicate things? Why don't we just work together with NATO and work out how we can work shared, use this shared infrastructure uh, to also protect EU interests? And then you can do the thing about the British going around saying, oh, and we can be super useful. And if we're super useful, can you please, please be nice to us? That's <laughs> basic diplomacy, yep. right? And, and, and I think that's where things are going to go eventually after the current government. But so I think on, on that level, I think there's. I th I'm actually not too pessimistic. I think. I think there is a. There's a very obvious approach. This also. I mean, I'm not. You know, picking this out of the sky. It's been discussed by many people for years, about how to sort of ensure there isn't a clash, but actually how both can complement one another, and and in that sense, also keep the Americans and the Canadians on, on side a little bit within these wider debates that are also in their interest. In terms of Finland and Sweden, I mean, yeah, this is this is actually for me the after Ukraine the most worrying question. I think that. On the one hand, this is an ideal moment for Finland and Sweden to join NATO because Ukraine, the Russians are tied down and can't do anything about it. Yeah, and I think this is the the crazy thing is it's it's the most logical next step, and Moscow will go crazy and it will just you know if it's struggling now in Ukraine, it's it's there's no way it can do much, you know anywhere else. Sure. Um, whether that's inevitable, we'll have to see. It depends on how long and how how, how long this drags out. Um, but I think I, I struggle to see a pathway where. Finland and Sweden at least aren't more highly integrated into NATO than they are now. Yeah, and of course they're already very highly integrated. Yeah, I mean, sort of su sub-nuclear commitments from us and that kind of stuff. You, you know, the, yeah. you know, they they are basically French nuclear doctrine basically says this, but or maybe the French just very, just openly say it that if you go to Finland, we'll nuke you. Yeah, right. This is this that also turns EU Article Forty Two into something meaning which the EU Defense Clause. Like, I mean, I think that's going to head in that direction pretty fast. I don't think the Russians are going to be able to do. Uh, very much about it. Um, so I, I think that, again, it brings us back to the Russian side is, is this is the, again, a lot of this is just, I mean, this is not a very scientific way of saying it, but it is, well, this is just very weird. Like everything yeah. the Russians have done have led to the problems. Like you now have the Russians for years have gone on about how the Ukrainians are bringing in American and, and, and British or French, you know, military volunteers and the Russians do this, now the Ukrainians are having an international brigade, right? It's like everything the Russians do then trigger the things that they claim they wanted to prevent. But again, that's the same with the Finland-Sweden dynamic is, is that, that, you know, the moment this, this, this opens up, they're going to, you know, they're, they're going to just be wired in completely into NATO defense structures. Yeah, absolutely. So we should probably talk a bit about the UK. I mean, we've touched on some of the, uh, I'm politely going to call them inconsistencies of the UK's kind of defence and strategic posture. But there is no doubt now that the EU is going to increase the pace of what was already happening. Uh, where does Britain fit in all of this? Uh, you know, Britain, which only last year, its defence review was, was going on about how it was going to become an Indo-Pacific player. Only last year, the Prime Minister was mocking Tobias Elwood in, in, in the 
the uh, select committee uh, for, for the idea that there could be tank battles in Europe, you know, literally, of course, what's happening now. So it, it, it's not obvious that Britain has got its kind of strategic perspective very well figured out at the moment. So what do you see as, as kind of where we're likely to end up, but perhaps contrast that with what we should be doing? So first of all, I, I have marked, viciously marked the Indo-Pacific strategy, but I don't want the pendulum to swing too far away. I think, yeah, no. the Indo-Pacific still matters. Because I do think that after the Johnson government, we're going to come to... I'm an optimist about the UK. I think after the Johnson government, I mean, you can already see where the debate is about where the UK will land in the next couple of years once Johnson is out. And I think it'll be relatively healthy. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's going to be a recalibration in terms of defense spending on the army. I think that's, that's a given. They're not going to cut the tanks the way they have. I think spending is going to go up so the Navy won't suffer, which is also good because I think Britain's primary contribution to shared European defense structures was always going to be naval. Yes. And that's fine. Nobody is asking the British to set up a continental army. This is where Tobias Elwood was a bit, I think, off. like Because he's an army, ex-army guy, so like, he wants yeah. his guys to have tanks. But let's be realistic. The UK can make a huge contribution in areas where it's specialized. And I think this is also a debate I think that the UK military needs to have now. Do you still want to be this top tier thing that the UK can't afford anymore? Or do you want to pick out certain things, really invest in them, and then say to European partners, this is what we've got, this is what we're good at, and can we be the people who coordinate this? Maybe in partnership with two out of the three other people who do that. I mean, and that would be probably primarily naval. The Navy is right about that. Yeah. But the Navy would have to reorient its strategic POV, point of view, on the European, Euro-Atlantic, and Euro-Mediterranean. Yeah. If it focused all the assets it had on one point, like the Italians do, mm. right? The Italian, Italians generally do punch above their weight because they don't waste their resources chasing dreams in the Pacific or or in Latin America or Caribbean, whatever. Their their whole strategic document. So there's a white paper, which is a really smart piece of work they did in 2015. Their their Ministry of Defense white paper basically yeah. said our entire geopolitical point of focus is the Mediterranean. It always has been. And this is where we're going to concentrate every asset we have. And I think that if the British really thought a little bit about what is realistic, they could become very powerful actors in the Euro-Atlantic and Euro-Mediterranean if they focused their resources on one or two points. That, I think, is also requires cutting through a lot of MOD, Ministry of Defense bureaucracy. It requires being a little bit more realistic about Britain being a regional power, which is important and does matter but can't really be the global power it once was, but also not to entirely abandon the Indo-Pacific, to be in the Indo-Pacific to accept that you are second tier or third tier in the Indo-Pacific, which is still substantial, but you're not going to be at the same table as Australia, the United States, India, Japan, or even Vietnam in that yeah. region. Vietnam, by the way, is a hugely underestimated power, but we can go on, that's again for another discussion, right? But yeah. and just live with the fact that you're, you're number two or number three. And of course that requires, as you say, it's, it requires a different government. It requires a functional relationship, both with the European Union and the wider European geopolitical space. I, I take that further. It requires a functional relationship to power. I mean, Alfred Vachts, who's a uh, one of the, 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 he wrote a history of militarism like uh, uh, sixty or seven years ago. It's one of the great military theorists. He says there's there's you have two kinds of militaries, or or, or even strategic cultures. You have one strategic culture that suffers from militarism. Yeah. And another kind of strategic culture that pursues the military way. And the military way, which he says is positive, is simply looking as scientifically and as systematically as possible at 
what a defined strategic goals it, goal is and working out how efficiently and how quickly and how with the least loss you achieve that strategic goal. That's the military way. Yeah. The other kinds of strategic culture, which he sees negatively, is one of militarism, where it's in the end all these military and diplomatic and strategic structures, they aren't there to achieve a strategic goal. They're a form of um, institutional ritual or cultural identity marker, or yeah. um, and they become ends in themselves. In a sense, and his argument is always: once societies get sucked into militarism, they become less and less able to pursue the military way. I think a lot of what the UK debate has suffered is a kind of a militaristic fetishization of all of these institutions and all of these different aspects of military power in ways that have weakened Britain's military power. Well, I, I completely agree with that. Having spent a lot of time around the military, yes, of course, culture and cultural practices are very important. But ultimately, Britain's military seems to be obsessed with its culture and history to the exclusion of uh, a lot of just important realities about the, the world as it is today. I was very struck by Ben Wallace, who I think has had a very good crisis, has shown himself to be a very capable Minister, uh, Secretary of State for Defence. You know, he still couldn't resist sitting in some room and talking about the Scots Guards in Crimea yeah, yeah, yeah. in the 1850s. And it's just... But this is... It comes back to my why I like the Italians, right? You, you yeah. sit down with the Italians and they say, and, and people always kind of get this wrong. And the Italians say, yeah, we're fucked here and this isn't working. And, ah, oh, God, that's embarrassing, isn't it? Oh, Jesus Christ. Like they lacerate themselves, right? They, yeah. They're sort of proud to not be proud. And, and, but actually, I always thought after a while, like Banter realized, that's actually good, right? Because they yeah. have no illusions. They have no illusions about how powerful they are and what they've got. They, they have no exactly what they've got and what they've not got. Yeah. Right, and they operate off that thing. The UK, you sit down and you ask them to say, and they're like, "Yeah, we've got that. Well, totally, and we can totally handle that." And blah. And you look at them and think, "You know, you're talking shit." And they will, will never admit it. And the Americans complain about this. Yeah. Right. And and to this day, and I think that's that that's what I meant about a functional relationship to power. This isn't beyond like Europe's position, whatever. It's a functional relationship to power. A functional relationship to power requires understanding what power you have and what you not got, and then adjusting your plans accordingly. Alex, we've covered an amazing uh, sort of landscape, both from the kind of the macro to talking about the UK to talking about Ukraine. Uh, just sort of before we finish, are there any sort of concluding thoughts on, on Ukraine that you wanted to uh, kind of share with the listeners be- before we finish? I think a broader thought is um, we need to sometimes things are unprecedented. And sometimes, I think this, for example, the insurgency discussion around this, what I meant before, is there is a tendency of falling back on things that we're familiar with, because that's what we worked on and that's what we've been engaged with, experienced. And I think that means that often we come at something without really understanding it's dangerous and what it means for what comes next. This is state-on-state warfare. Yeah. This is different. And we need to start thinking a little bit about what and once the if, if if this plays out, even with the Ukrainians half surviving, every middle-sized state will take a look at this and say, you know what, we can fuck the Americans or the Chinese, you know. And I think that's that that I don't doesn't mean that they're going to attack. No middle-sized state, in its right mind, attacks a great power, but it does mean that they begin to think they have a little bit more leeway. Yes. Like the Iranians have been testing their leeway towards the Americans for years and shown that you can get away with it if you're spiky yeah. enough. Yeah. To, to, and then other states will start looking around thinking, hmm, you know, that's interesting. That sort of state-on-state state dynamic will have to be tamped down really, really quickly. I think that's a fascinating point to, to finish on. Alex, thank you so much for such an interesting discussion. So many other sort of rabbit holes that we, we could go down, and I hope we'll have the chance to do that at some point in the future. 
Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. If you found this podcast helpful, please consider backing us on Patreon so we can continue our work and spread the word to those you think might be interested. Many thanks. We'll speak again soon.